Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's the Wonky Show. We talk about Westminster politics, the future of data futures, the student accommodation survey, and a TV drama on essay mills. It's all coming up. I mean, I think the other the other problem is that I mean, at some point, you know, there's going to be an announcement of let's say it's seven and a half grand fees or, or whatever it might be. Um, you know, let's say that's twenty three. That's going to kick in in twenty three, twenty four. There's going to be such a dip in twenty two, twenty three as people delay the decision to go to university. I mean, how are universities going to deal with that? to The Wonky Show, your direct way into higher education, policy, people and politics. I'm Rachel Firth and here to lift their one rep max of higher education policy. As usual, we have three awesome guests. In London, we have Gavin Conlon, partner at London Economics. Gavin, give us your highlight of the week, please. Well, I'm going to give you a highlight and I'm going to give you a low light. So the highlight was the uh, Chancellor of the Spring Statement, So where there's a very big section in the OBR report talking about student loan accounting. So that's quite interesting. Uh, the low light, though, is the fact that economic growth has been revised downwards. And we modelled this yesterday, but uh, essentially this adds about £400 million to the cost of the student loan book to the Exchequer. So that's the low light. And hanging about at the start of time, we have Chris Shelley, Director of Student and Academic Services at the University of Greenwich. Chris, your highlight of the week, please. Well, my highlight, Rachel, was all the great feedback we've had at this university following on from University Mental Health Day last week. Where we launched our health and wellbeing strategy. We had a visit from Rugby World Cup star Matt Dawson and we had a, a dozens and dozens of events across the campuses and it was just great to get a little bit of positivity uh, around all the things that we're doing in HE to try and address the issue of mental health. And from the wonky stable, minding the gap in Watford, we have Wonky's associate editor, Jim Dickinson. Jim, give us your highlight of the week, please. Uh, well, for me, it has to be the watching BBC Parliament when the vote was on on ruling out a no deal Brexit, which, uh, given the kind of chaos, for, for me, resembled the final day of NUS National Conference when everyone is still drunk. Uh, right. This week, we kick off with the totally uneventful, bland and calm world of UK politics. We've had the Spring Statement, the Office for Budget Responsibility, or OBR, have given us an update, and we've had another meaningful vote on Brexit. So, Jim, what does all this mean, and what are the implications for HE? <laughs> what does this mean, and what are the implications? Uh, this is no I- question. No idea, and no idea. Now, uh, no, lots has been going on this week, so let's try and do a little roundup. So, uh, yeah, Spring Statement. Spring Statement's not a real proper fiscal event it's uh it's a it's a statement that uh, kind of responds to uh the office for budget responsibilities kind of assessment of where the economy is uh but he does he, he normally gets to kind of tumble out a few goodies and there were a very small number of uh goodies announcements and so on so what was relevant for the sector um uh, he's brought forward the halving of the 10% fee that small businesses had to pay to take on apprentices to April the 1st. There was big 
uh, concern, mainly in the FE sector, really, about when that was going to kick in, but he's brought that forward. Uh, PhD level occupations will be exempt from visa caps from this autumn, which is of interest to those that follow the kind of immigration stuff. There's new money for science and technology. Uh, he sort of said that an international education strategy is coming, although we sort of knew that. Um, lots of new numbers from the OBR on the implications of the ONS re, uh, work on student loans, but I guess Gavin will have plenty to say about that uh, in a minute. Um, I guess the, the, the for for Augur watchers, the interesting bit was he name dropped the Augur review, said it would be published uh, shortly, uh, but obviously didn't say when. Now. Um, lots of other things that he talked about were essentially linked to the comprehensive spending review. So he did a few paragraphs on the CSR. Um, and, you know, it's pretty clear now that, that regardless of to some extent what Olga says, um, the response to it is what matters. And the response to it is lodged firmly inside the comprehensive spending review process. The, the one bit of interesting news that kind of vaguely relates to this that wasn't spring statement news is there are rumours today in the education press that um, Damien Hines was planning a series of uh, HE interventions earlier on this week on some of the old press tropes around grade inflation and unconditional offers and so on that were somehow being linked to the auger process. It was of interest that it would be Damien Hines rather than Chris Skidmore. There's a suggestion that Damien Hines wants to take back control of the the, the kind of pre-auger or responding to auger agenda. Um, uh, but those interventions were pulled, so maybe those interventions will appear. The relationship between those interventions and the Office for Students isn't clear, and so on and so on. I, I know this, I mean, it's not like the, the budgets of old um, when the Chancellor stands up, but I mean, there was some sort of interesting stuff in the spring statement. So, I mean, we're talking about the auger review and we're talking about what sort of, what's the fiscal envelope that auger can, um, you know, operate within and how Damien Hyde's going to respond to that. But I think we have to think more fundamentally about the sort of long-term economic growth of the economy. So we're, we're in a situation where the OBR have, you know, basically downgraded growth forecasts from something like 1.6% per annum to 1.2%. Now it doesn't seem like much. 0.4 percentage points doesn't seem like much, but you know, this is, you know, the fifth or sixth or seventh downgrading of economic growth. And this is sort of catastrophic, actually, for government uh, finances. So if we look at things like the student loan book, as I said earlier, you know, uh, you look at, um, because it's an income contingent loan repayment system, every uh, percentage point reduction in uh, graduate salaries basically adds about 900 million quid to the cost of uh, the student loan book to the exchequer every for every cohort. And these are sort of like, I mean, these are really serious numbers. So the 0.4 percentage point reduction in economic growth forecasted, if that feeds to, to graduate salaries, that adds about 413 million quid uh, to the cost of the student loan book per cohort. So it's, you know, really dreadful stuff. Um, there's other issues that he sort of didn't mention as well. And, and I think you have to look outside higher education, um, a little bit. So one of the other big issues that's going on at the moment is, you know, the significantly reduced funding in schools and sixth form colleges. And this is, this is a problem that's going to be, uh, is being stored up for universities going forward and for higher education going forward. You see, um, you know, the, the rate, uh, the cost rate is like, you know, approaching £4,000 has gone down by 20, 25% in real terms over the last five, six years. Sixth form colleges have basically eliminated any provision of um, modern foreign languages and any sort of wider uh, activities from the school curriculum. And essentially, 
you know, that the, the young people that are going to be entering to higher education in the coming years are going to be less prepared for university than they might have been a decade ago. And that's, that's a real problem. It's also the case that there's going to be no supply of students into uh, subject areas like French, German, modern foreign languages, etc. So it's, um, you know, it's dressed up and it doesn't look so bad because of, you know, the absolute chaos that's happening in the back benches and everywhere else in Parliament. So a lot of that is lost, but there's some real uh, warning signs uh, yesterday. One of the things that I think is really interesting is that when the, when ministers, when Damien Hines, for example, is ever invited on to news programmes, he will say a record amount of money is being spent on schools. Um, and, the, you know, to, to people who don't follow this very closely, that will seem odd if schools are complaining that head teachers are having to clean toilets and, and so on. And what that's really about is per head funding. So um, we know if there's a population growth coming in HE of 18-year-olds in two or three years' time, that, that therefore must have been hitting different levels of now secondary education for the past few years. And it's the per head funding and its distribution, of course, that therefore uh, makes the real difference. Now, why is that of particular relevance to higher education? Well, um, Alison Wolfe, uh, who, of course, is on the Orga panel, um, she did the first of uh, one of three lectures uh, a couple of weeks ago at King's and it was originally scheduled to be post-Orga but of course we're now pre-Orga so I suspect some of the slides had to be rewritten but the killer slide for me was an international comparison of the um, of the unit of resource, the total amount spent per full-time student and of all the competitors it's only the US that spends more so it is hard to predict anything other than what there might be some discussion about um, you know minimum grade thresholds and qualification reform and so on uh, I suspect that it's the unit of resource they will come for and it, it's the unit of resource that the Treasury probably on balance given everything else thinks is too high and, and that I think is where the nexus of the row between the sector, government, auger and so on will be in the next few months because you know the settled view in government is that universities are profitable and probably could, you know, teach undergraduates on less money per head. I think universities have got a real, a real problem uh, ahead on this. I think if the, the fee is cut to seven and a half grand, there's no top up in teaching grant. Uh, I think it's going to be sort of pretty, pretty catastrophic for them. Uh, given that everything else is going on, given the slowdown in China and the lack of uh, ability to recruit international students, everything else, I think uh, the org review could be really, really challenging. And all we want is just clarity. We just want, you know, we don't want it's coming soon or shortly or imminently or potentially or whatever. We just want Orga to report. We want to know what's happening next because it's really difficult to plan for the future without knowing the answers to those questions that you've just highlighted, Gavin. I mean, I think the other the other problem is that, I mean, at some point, you know, there's going to be an announcement of, let's say, it's seven and a half grand fees or, or whatever it might be. Um, you know, let's say that's 23, that's going to kick in in 23, 24. There's going to be such a dip in 22, 23 as people delay the decision to go to university. I mean, how are universities going to deal with that? Chris, um, we've got a really interesting piece on, uh, Wonky at the moment about, um, uh, the representative body for, for, for universities, UK. And with all this, all this, um, all these incredible things that are going on at the moment in the, uh, Westminster and, and in UK politics, do you think universities are making, a good enough case for themselves and really getting them, uh, you know, forcing themselves into the debate, you know, pushing their agenda forward. Are we, are we, are we doing a good job of that? Well, I think, I think what you're talking about there is Anthony Seldon's uh, piece this morning, which he's written for um, HEPI, uh, highlighting <coughs> exactly those questions, really. Are the sector, is the sector pu pushing itself forward enough? Um, is our reputation among the general public 
what it should be at this stage and, and Anthony uh, argues no and that a large reason for that is that the representative body Universities UK um, needs to sort of up its game really um, I think he makes a couple of valid points in this piece uh, something that he says is he finds it sad how um, little we tend to talk about education that the, the kind of press around higher education seems to talk about an awful lot of things whether it's VC pay whether it's students value for money uh, whether it's mental health or whether it's accommodation costs whatever it might be and but very little actually about simply on the educational experience uh, the, the quality of education uh, and uh, and I, th- I think he's, he's got a valid point there that we we aren't stating that that point uh, strongly enough the, the pure value of higher education is somehow being lost um, in everything else uh, that's going on uh, and I think he, he makes some interesting suggestions about how uh, universities UK could could strengthen its uh, its arm one final thing though in the spring statement his flourish his little flourish that was, is of vague interest to us is he uh, Philip Hammond repeated the Scottish government thing from last August on period poverty but there was a specific difference so basically it's free sanitary products for uh, young people in schools colleges and universities in Scotland but he very uh, specifically did not use the word universities in the English version when Philip Hammond re- uh, kind did the English version the other day so um, the, the the question will be whether universities themselves in uh, the English system choose to put their hand in their pocket and match that pledge right let's see who's been blogging for us this week I'm Helen Scott and I'm executive director of UHR the professional association for HR staff in British and Irish universities our UHR article was published on International Women's Day and it's about what universities can and should do to narrow or eliminate the gender pay gap and why the pace of change is frustratingly slow, more silver tortoise than silver bullet. Universities have till the end of March to publish their annual gender pay gap data and we don't expect to see much change since last year and that's frustrating. It's about culture change from the top down and the bottom up, not just HR policies and procedures. We've got some top tips for what's worked in some universities and case studies, including suggesting that all roles be advertised part-time with the option to go full-time and abandoning unnecessary requirements for qualifications for jobs that don't really need them. Targets that focus the mind and doing the right thing should be the prime motivator. We're all human beings and we want equality of opportunity for everyone. I'm Jonathan Mickey. I'm Professor of Innovation and Knowledge Exchange at the University of Oxford, where I'm president of Kellogg College, which is a graduate college where the majority of students are studying part-time. That's the only college in Oxford that's true of. And I also direct the university's continuing education as part-time degrees, online courses, summer schools, lectures for the public, and so on. My piece is about the need for continuing education, lifelong learning, adult learning, and picking up on the point that this coming November will be 100 years since the report on adult education published in November 1919. Uh, And we've established a centenary commission on adult education that I'm co-secretary of, which will aim to publish a report this coming November, 100 years on, on the, the current need for adult education, which is every bit as important as it was 100 years ago. And interestingly, the main arguments made in that 1919 report still hold true today. Great challenges ahead of us, they said, same today. New technologies on the horizon, same today. And the importance of electors being able to tell the difference between genuine political arguments and demagoguery, same today. Next up, the news that data futures will not be going live in 2019-20. With the briefing email which was circulated stating there are a number of technical challenges to resolve. So, Gavin, can you tell us more about this one? 
Okay, so Data Futures is uh, it's a, a data collection exercise by HESA, and essentially it's meant to be a real-time data collection exercise, real-time in inverted commas, because what it does, instead of essentially waiting till the end of the academic year and uh, collecting all the information on uh, essentially student students uh, and then publishing in retrospect, it's going to be a real-time analysis or data collection exercise. It's going to combine the main student data record, uh, AP record, and ITT, uh, initial teacher training record. And it's going to take place in a staggered way across the academic year. So it's meant to be a resource for the sector, which is much needed, uh, but it's also meant to be a resource for the Office for Students. Uh, fine. Uh, sort of like acting as a dashboard or an advanced warning system um, that might help them to identify potentially if uh, any particular higher education provider gets into trouble. So it's been stopped because of technical challenges. So um, it's not quite, you know, seaborne ferries and not having ferries. It's not quite uh, a catastrophic decision to implement the, the data futures and then sort of row back on that. They've decided to basically pause the, the um, implementation of data futures for an undefined period of time. Now, the question is whether, it, well, the question is, first of all, why did this happen? I mean, what are the technical challenges that uh, made the steering group decide that they were not going to go ahead with the decision uh, to proceed? Uh, I mean, maybe, Chris, you've got a better idea. You work in a sector. Yeah, I mean, this is something that, uh, you know, we've been discussing around data futures in our institution, and I'm sure everyone else has as well for, for quite a while. Uh, the alpha and then briefly beta pilots have taken place, and um, and certainly uh, it, difficulties have been identified in those as to um, just how complex uh, it is to gather all the relevant data. I mean, look, no one disagrees, I don't think, that this is a good thing. Ultimately, it is far better for the sector, it's far better for institutions that we have access to more real-time data, that we are more efficient with our data, that we are um, uh, confident that we we are gathering everything um, in the best uh, and swiftest possible way that will help us plan and help us respond, etc. All of these are, are very good things. N no one has ever questioned, I don't think, the, the ultimate goal. But institutions are the large complex, in many ways, old-fashioned organizations with various different ways of collecting data, lots of different pockets of practice around institutions within different faculties and schools and different campuses. There's a huge amount of data that goes on, uh, that, that, that exists within an institution. And it's very, very difficult for some institutions uh, to actually be able to, to gather all of that to change systems and processes to get them up to speed to be able to report in real time. Not only because some of the things that will be needed to report in data futures actually really need to be collected right at the very start of the cycle. So if you're talking about updating your uh, online registration process and systems in order to get gather this data, that is something that could take in itself a year to 18 months and we need to be ready. So I think it's absolutely um, understandable and, and correct that there has been a delay because I don't think the sector, and I don't think it's worth sort of pointing fingers as to you know, who isn't ready, I don't think the sector as a whole is quite ready, both in terms of institutional data processing uh, uh, systems and HESA's own um, gathering of that data. We're just not simply ready to do this yet. And it is absolutely oh, 100% important that when this is launched and when it happens, that it happens correctly. Because if it fails or if it's inaccurate, it will be flawed right from the very start. But I've got a question then. I mean, most people would sort of say, listen, students turn up and you sort of collect the information on day one about these students. What's so complex about it? I mean, people, most people sort of can, you know, it's counting things. So what, what is the, the level of information that's, that you have to collect uh, that makes it so challenging? Well, I mean, the, the problem is there are so many different levels of data and so many different areas of data collection. So, yeah, when students register, there is, you know, would be a single point of, uh, of, of registration where you can gather certain amounts of information and a certain amount of data. F from then on, there are a huge number of uh, uh, branches to the student journey 
physically and in data terms uh, that, that mean that data is all over the place. It's gathered in different ways. It's collected in different ways. It's, it's monitored in different ways. And, and various institutions are just at different levels. Uh, look, you know, from my own personal institution's point of view, I think we'd have been ready. We're, we're very good. Actually, we've got some really good data uh, management processes in here, but that isn't the case for everyone. And, and I, I, this was always going to be a very, very big and, and difficult technical challenge for the sector. And I wouldn't necessarily expect everyone to understand why that is. And I often don't myself, but um, it's, it's so important that we do it at the right time um, and not, not try to rush it through. So how delayed will it be? Well, I think at this stage, um, the, the, I guess the hint is that will be a sort of a twelve-month uh, um, delay. There's no point delaying by by, by three to six months or, or whatever because you're, you're talking about a data cycle. So really, 1920 was the initial target. I assume that they're now looking how can we get this ready for 2021. Um, I don't know that, but that's that's an assumption. Um, the important thing now is I think that the, the HESA board and the and the steering group uh, uh, work with institutions to you know, identify what is a realistic goal uh, and agree what that is and, and then publish it. And hopefully, we'll be able to be able to stick to. The, the, the next question, really, I think, is what happens. What does this mean, really means for the OFS? Who, so, of course, we're relying on this data, um, and, and, I, and that's a question for them to answer, probably. But the thing is, for the OFS, I mean, it would be a very handy resource for the OFS. But I mean, obviously, and, and good quality data about the status of different institutions is always useful. But you know, there's enough leading indicators out there that's going to give a very strong steer as to you know the sort of financial health of uh, the sector. Or particular institutions. I mean, you'll be able to find you'll be able to find this out from like applications and acceptances at a sort of very early stage about what the financial prospects of each institution are. Surely, yeah. Well, of course, I think I mean HESA is an interesting body, isn't it? So um, there's a designated quality body, um, as if there could have been anyone else in Britain that could have done the QIA's job. But nevertheless, <laughs> uh, uh, bodies were invited to apply to be the designated quality body. And then similarly, over in Statsland, uh, anyone was invited to apply to be the designated. Uh, sort of numbers and counting body, which, uh, of course, in the end ended up being HESA. And that matters because that means that a really big kind of customer of HESA's uh, work is OFS. Now, my understanding, and I suspect there's all sorts of people that, that will know more about this out in the sector, specifically working in that kind of sub-community of data, know more about this than me. But my understanding is that to some extent, there's a tension here between the sector itself being a customer of data futures, simplifying, standardising uh, uh, data that is then of use to the sector in its decision-making, and the OFS as a kind of big customer uh, because because he is the designated, uh, I can't remember the phrase, the designated data body, yeah. Um, and there is a sense from lots of the data professionals, certainly on Twitter, that um, it, it, it is uh, the kind of big bad regulator that has come in with all sorts of requirements that to some extent has, has kind of uh, put some spanners in the works. I'm not, I'm not sure how true that is. Um, I suspect that... Uh, Although, of course, if it's running at um, full pelt, OFS does need lots of the bits and bobs that data futures would produce. I suspect that Gavin's kind of right that if the OFS in year two... Uh, and remember, it you know hasn't even finished registering. Done finished doing the initial registration batch yet. I suspect in year two, OFS will be okay about using the kind of numbers that are out there already on the old systems that Hefke had. Um, it will be if this it becomes a, a problem again. So if if these problems somehow become compounded and and there isn't, we, you know, we're not ready in a year's time. That's when things I think will start to get uh, really tricky. Yeah, I was, I was going to say. Listen, there's there's two things about this. I think. Th- it's very rare 
uh, it's very rare that in public policy or when, uh, when a decision is made that when additional information comes, uh, comes through uh, to cease a project or to delay a project that that actually ever takes place. So many times in public policy, you know, the politicians and, and the, the government departments just plow on regardless. And you can think of, you know, a million policies like this. Um, so it's actually really encouraging that somebody sort of, you know, had the guts to actually sort of, despite the optics in terms of this looks bad and it hasn't been implemented on time, somebody had the guts to actually sort of hit the pause button uh, because in the past, you know, you could have seen this uh, sort of carry on. The data would have been a bag of spanners. You would have had a discontinuity in the data and therefore all analysis of trends in higher education are would cease to exist. Um, the negative, though, about this is I think this the pause might open up a uh, discussion on items that have been previously agreed about uh, on data futures about sort of definitional issues um, and things like this. So, the, you know, it might be just picking at a scab in some respects. Now, no hidden history this week because we've launched a thing. With more detail, here is Wonky's Editor-in-Chief and CEO, Mark Leach. Hi, I'm Mark Leach, Founder, Editor-in-Chief and CEO of Wonky. And I'm absolutely thrilled to be introducing Wonky SUs this week. At Wonky, we're a real fan of the UK's unique student union sector. I started my career in higher education by representing students in my students' union, and many of the team here have similar stories to tell. Student unions tend to get a bad press nationally, but away from the student politics headlines, the day-to-day contribution that SU's officers and staff make to higher education policy and decision-making, both locally and nationally, is vital, where co-production with students is a defining and celebrated component of our system. Right now, most of us in the sector will be all too aware that it's SU election season, as hundreds of students put themselves and our ideas for improvement forward. With faith in representative democracy and an all-time low in wider society, we ought to be thrilled that in UK higher education, there's a thriving tradition of student democracy that generates ideas, feedback, challenge, and keeps decision makers on their toes. But representing students and contributing to policy effectively has never been easy. But in comparison to when I started out, it has become really tough. Higher education policy is complex, confusing, and constantly changing. We sometimes take for granted just how impenetrable the sector's language and structures are for anyone, let alone those that have just been elected and won't have the luxury of a year to bed in. We know that SU officers and staff that understand the environment and the issues are more effective, get more done, and make a bigger contribution to the life of our sector. And given Wonky is all about finding and promoting diverse voices and helping to improve higher education policymaking, we want to help. So for a small fee, student unions will be able to subscribe to Wonky SUs. We will produce policy briefings and beginner's guides on key issues in higher education and the bespoke weekly news service for SUs featuring the latest developments, news coverage, analysis and opportunity for student unions, as well as access to a dedicated discussion group. And full subscribers will be able to take advantage of training, take part in dedicated interactive webinars on key issues that SUs will be discussing with institutions and will be able to access the team at Wonky with questions and queries. If you think any of that sounds useful, email su's at wonky.com. And if you work in a university and you think your student union would benefit from a bit of Wonky, please let them know we're doing this. Next up, the 2019 National Student Accommodation Survey. 
Comments in the responses of over 2,000 students, the report states that many students feel overwhelmed by the cost of housing and that most students borrow money to pay for their accommodation. Chris, can you tell us more about this, please? Uh, well, yes, this is a survey conducted by Save the Student, who are a, a student money advice uh, website, and they've uh, canvassed the uh, opinions of over 2,000 students about their experience of accommodation and uh, includes some interesting results. Some of the information is um, uh, yes, uh, about their cost uh, and about sort of... It's, uh, bits about data and, and um, you know, quantitative, but actually I think the really rich information is in the qualitative feedback and the, the, interest, the experiences of students, uh, especially in the private uh, sector of accommodation. So look, to, you know, the opinion of 2,000 students is, is, is very valid. 2,000 is a lot of people and, and that's why I think their experiences are very worth looking at. Um, this is 2,000 out of 2.5 million, so quite how much we can learn from the actual cost analysis that the survey uh, presents, I'm not sure. But um, the, the, certainly the things that are presented about their experience uh, are quite eye-opening. Um, the, the top 10 biggest problems that students say that they experience, uh, the top two are noisy housemates and housemates stealing food. So their biggest problems that students have is actually other students. Um, I mean, perhaps the stealing food is just them preparing for a post-Brexit apocalypse, but um, it's, it's certainly... Um, interesting that their own behaviours are a problem. But some really worrying things there. 35% of students have experienced damp, 32% lack of water, uh, 20% disruptive building work, uh, and then other things, 16% rodents and, and, and pests. And, and I think, you know, this, this raises some interesting questions. Of course, universities' own accommodation is a university's problem, and I certainly would hope that we aren't, um, uh, well, we're certainly doing our best to provide water and heating and, and prevent rodents in our own accommodation. Um, but once students go out into the private sector and start finding their own accommodation, uh, there's a question there about how much of that is, is our responsibility, how much is it for us to help and advise and guide students uh, through the experience of navigating their way through, you know, a commercial sector, dealing with rogue landlords or, or even good landlords, uh, paying their bills, uh, doing their appropriate budgeting. Um, and I I think, I think this flags that, 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 you know, there's a huge part of a student's experience which has a big potential to impact on their uh, academic experience. Uh, 63% of the students in the survey said they felt the cost of accommodation negatively impacted their mental health, and that was a rise of 45% from just last year. More than 80% said they want their rent capped in line with student finance. So I think it is, you know, in our interest as universities to know and understand what the experience of students is. Um, uh, in their accommodation because it has such an impact on their day-to-day -day lives. And when what the survey flags is more than half of students said that, well, their maintenance loan doesn't even cover their rent. That immediately says, well, more than half the students have got to go out and work or they've got to go out and borrow money. Uh, and that puts an extra strain on them financially and socially and academically. So this is something that we should all be listening to, not least, of course, because we know the OFS have said that they want to start focusing on accommodation costs. The very prominence of this kind of survey, I mean, yesterday, given everything that was happening yesterday, this story at one point yesterday was the second story on the BBC website. So this is of interest to people and the sector needs to be be ready to, to respond and to support our, our students um, as they experience this. I, I just one thing to just to flag. I think a couple of weeks ago you had Pete Quinn on and, and discussed uh, the experience of students and accommodation, and, and he flagged then uh, lots of us are trying to, you know, we're introducing guarantor schemes, we're uh, linking up with citizens advice bureaus, we're trying to connect ourselves better to students, uh, connect our students better to the advice and the uh, support that they can have that can minimise the financial pressures and uh, and hopefully improve their experience. But the problem is, is, is any of this like? You know, I mean, this is all sort of dreadful stuff. Uh, you know, 20% of young people live in, you know, in rat infested or sort of with rodents and things like this. I mean, this is horrible, clearly. Uh, but it's the exact same for, uh, young, young, uh, people who were young graduates in the private rented market. I mean, you know, this, I mean, one bit I read in the report is it's on average, it takes something like a month for the landlord to respond to particular queries or complaints and things like this. 
but all this represents a wider policy failure. I mean, you know, it used to be the case that people lived in sort of cheap private accommodation uh, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, but all because of the lack of house building fundamentally across the economy, all the sort of what used to be traditional student housing has been basically snapped up uh, by you know, if, if they're lucky enough by young people. Uh, and that means that the, you know, students in private rent, privately rented properties are sort of getting even lower quality, uh, you know, rentals. And it's just a, it's just a lack of, you know, a lack of government investment, surely. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I, th- I think the policy failure here is extraordinary on all sorts of levels. I mean, the first thing I'd say is, um, whenever reports like this come out, what you don't see is a comment from, the housing minister, and you don't see a comment from the uh, higher education minister. And I suspect that's because they think it's each other's problem. But if you think about the concerns of students and the concerns of parents, that stat you did about, or when someone said just now, you know, this at one point was the you know, second most popular item on BBC News. There's a reason for that. It's massively important to people. But because it's a subset of this wider housing crisis, that is a really wicked, difficult policy problem. I don't think anyone thinks it's their problem. And, you know, I mean, you only have to look at Sam Gema's Sam on Campus tour. Every single time he turned up on a campus, people would raise the cost and quality of student accommodation but yet I can't remember him ever saying anything about accommodation other than promising that DfE were looking at it at Wonkfest and then nothing coming of the promise so it, the, the, the lack of any kind of consideration or policy response I think is really interesting and, and highly problematic what is causing it I mean, the, the, of course, this is a subset of the wide, wider housing crisis. Uh, me and DK have started to have a look. We haven't got anything hugely robust at this point. But on the site a couple of weeks ago, we published something where we started to have a look at the concentration of students that are in all sorts of urban areas. You know, the growth of the sector must have caused more students to move into those areas. We know that graduates, to some extent, will stick around in urban areas and so on. That must be it must be a decent hypothesis that that is pushing the... the that is making the kind of cost of housing and the housing shortage worse. That means costs go up and so on. And and that leads to a couple of things. Either it leads to rogue landlords generating the sort of student experience that you, that this survey, that NUS's survey a few weeks ago describes. And or it also leads to this kind of gold rush to throw up purpose-built student accommodation, some of which is of excellent quality, but quite expensive. Some of which is of terrible quality, but quite expensive. And, and the policy question there is, is it okay that lots of foreign investors are generating 15 20% yields out of what we think is uh, student maintenance spend i'm just not sure that 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 we wanted to do that as a country when we you know lifted the number caps 4 or 5 years ago so this is a really thorny wicked problem it relates to the boarding school model of he it, re- it we we've got to think about this in terms of that kind of growth in 18 year olds that will hit us ne- in the next decade um, it relates to the size of institutions um, but it can't go on. At some point, something has to change here because even if Olga was to turn around and say, here's another 20% on you know, maintenance loans, the, 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 the cost of accommodation is shooting up faster. Well, I think this is, I think this is one of the problems. I mean, you talk about the maintenance loan. I mean, I think part of the acceleration in the price of student accommodation has been a result of the availability of, of maintenance loans. And private landlords aren't stupid. They know what the, uh, essentially the budget constraint of young people might be given the fact they have maintenance loans. And I think they've essentially captured that. One other point I was going to say, you know, for the Diamond Review of Higher Education in Wales uh, a couple of years ago, one of the points that was uh, put into the final report was that 
because of this increased availability of, of maintenance grants and maintenance loans for university accommodation, there was going to be a track. Uh, basically, the cost of accommodation was going to be tracked to make sure that universities didn't gouge the eyes out of students. So, and they were they were pretty strong on that. So, there there are ways of stopping you know universities from hiking prices. Private landlords, what can you do? It's a it's a free market, unfortunately. Commanding the full confidence of HE data people everywhere, welcome to Yes, But Does It Correlate? This week we are looking at non-continuation, specifically the number of students who dropped out of HE entirely in 2017-18, and the number of students who transferred to another provider, from last week's HESA data. Do some providers tend to see students leave HE, whereas others see transfers, or does it correlate? So I would like to think that there's an inverse correlation here because when we're supporting students who are considering withdrawal, one of the options we would present to them would be, well, have you considered transferring to another HE provider? So I'd like to think that as we increase the number of students who are going to other providers, we're decreasing those who are dropping out of HE overall. I'll play anyway. Um, I mean, I don't know. I would have thought that if you plot these in axes, I would say that there's no correlation because uh, a dropout is a flow in one direction. A transfer, it can work both ways. Presumably, institutions would receive students and lose students to other universities. So it's uh, a, it should be net-net uh, zero on average. So you would imagine it's uh, not correlated. The answer is yes, it does. With R squared at 0.74, this is one of the strongest correlations we've seen so far. Roughly twice as many students are likely to drop out of any given institution as those who transfer. More students, that's 250, transfer from Middlesex University than any other, and more students leave HE entirely, that's 570, from Leeds Beckett. As always, the graph is on the site, and I've used size to show the overall student numbers in each institution. Remember, with data protection in mind, HACER rounds these values to the nearest five, and where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. And finally, SMLs made a rather public appearance this week, being featured in ITV's drama Cheat. The programme features a student who uses an SML, and we've seen one of these companies providing research to the student site, The Tab. So, Jim, are these companies gaining prominence and credibility, and should we be worried about that? Well, I mean, it's been quite a cheaty week this week. So uh, before, before I actually answer your question, Rachel, um, so I, I mean, the big US story around higher education this week has been parents cheating their their kids' way into HE through some sort of big scam. Uh, so, and, and that story's been quite hard to avoid because uh, it involves celebrities and things. So, I mean, that's worth a look. We don't we don't have a similar problem in the UK, but of course, we do in theory have this problem with uh, essay mails now. Um, I always think it's fascinating when higher education is represented in popular culture. There are always some tropes. So uh, they always feature really, really old buildings. It's really hard to find a student being taught in a brand new building in popular culture's version of English HE, whereas, of course, <laughs> in reality, there are tons of new buildings. Um, but in, in episode one the other night, uh, the, uh, and this is broadly a kind of psychodrama around that involves sex and murder, like 
like every other ITV one drama. Uh, but the backdrop and mechanic to kind of make this work was uh, a student uh, suspected of uh, plagiarising their dissertation. Now, there were some obvious problems insofar as there didn't appear to be any second marking of this dissertation and it didn't appear to have been submitted to turn it in. Uh, the academic themselves, that part of the plot device was that the academic wasn't a permanent academic but appeared to have an office the size of a small branch of Morrison's. Um, <laughs> but nevertheless... <laughs> Nevertheless, it's it's really interesting to see this stuff in there and, and some of the kind of moral questions of, you know, academics that are supervising students, their relationship with students in a kind of supervisory sense, particularly when they then suspect them of cheating. They may not manifest in, you know, sex and murder, but, but some of the issues well, it raises about... <laughs> no, some of the issues it raises about those relationships is, is, is really interesting. Well, one aside, by the way, I think it was this week that Turn- it was announced that Turnitin had been sold for... Uh, you know, over a billion dollars. Um, of course, the scandal there is that I'm not convinced that when students enrolled in institutions and, you know, their essays were all uploaded to Turnitin, they knew that one day their intellectual property would make someone else that amount of profit. Um, because Turnitin is, of course, has its value in this vast database of previous students' uh, work. But but anyway, nevertheless, fascinating to see, you know, cheating and the relationship between academics and students kind of highlighted in this way. I mean, my hot take on this is, uh, is essay mills are bad, um, <laughs> uh, and but uh, but I mean they are they, they are difficult for us to to uh, to intercept if you like uh, they, they operate um, around social media with all sorts of I mean I think Jim I've seen you testing their bots on Twitter before by simply using the, uh, some keywords and, and a bot comes in and, and offers you a, the service of an essay mill but they also operate you know they, they pay students to hang outside our libraries and just try and listen out for students who are on cigarette breaks talking about their you know how difficult it, and they sidle up to them and say well actually I can get you help with that. it's really difficult for us to police you're this kind kidding of stuff. So, no no we've, we've had that, that report so you know, it's what we really need, and, it, and it's it's flagged in in the Wonky Daily today. Uh, Pinsent Masons have, have uh, penned a piece saying, "Look, it's legislation is overdue. We need something to help us in this area because um, you know, Turnitin actually for us is a hugely important tool. It's a very valuable tool for. I'm not surprised by the kind of price tag because it's it, they've sort of got a monopoly on on this particular um, you know f- function of higher education, and, and it's really useful for us to be able to um, use that as a as a plagiarism uh, tool, but. Uh, we need legislation to help us with the SA mills because they're really difficult to monitor. I think the other problem, I mean, I always think about this. We did a piece of work a couple of years ago for Ofqual and uh, essentially we, um, you know, we did some mystery shopping of uh, SA mill sites. And of course, you know, it's, uh, on you know all the SA mill sites, I sort of guarantee, you know, A grades or whatever it might have been. And essentially they were independently marked, blind marked, and the grades came in as E's and F's. Uh, I mean, it was, you know, the standard of the, the work that is done by these SMLs. I mean, forget about the, the morality or the legality of it. I mean, the standard of the work is just, you know, shocking and appalling. And, you know, I don't know. It's just such a, a shame that uh, it's got to the stage that students don't they think that an easier way out is to pay for an essay rather than, rather than putting in a couple of days' work. Yeah, I mean, just to say, there's a terrific piece upon the site uh, today uh, from Phil Pilkington. Uh, he's doing this kind of series of narratives for us on higher education that looks at some of the kind of wider issues, both on kind of how you regulate this and, and, and the morality of it all. I won't spoil it. I will recommend it. But, but I should just read his final paragraph, really, uh, that kind of sets some of it in context, I think. So he says, look, if we were to be limited to the crude material conditions 
questions of tuition fees and debt on graduation, some poor assessment practices and worse feedback, the anxiety of gaining employment, finding affordable housing, a career possibility, the dangers facing the UK economy, the spectre of racist populism across Europe and all the other things we know face students. We shouldn't be surprised that so many students are cheating. Perhaps we should be surprised that so few are. And I think there's something interesting in there about the, you know, where the stakes are at cheating, how easy it is to cheat now, and the kind of, to some extent, moralising approach that we use, encouraging students not to cheat, and and whether or not, actually, we'd be much better off spending all of our time focused on designing new, innovative, interesting forms of assessment that aren't write an essay. So, that is about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically to search for The Wonky Show via iTunes or your favourite Android podcast directory or find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast and if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch so thanks to Gavin and to Chris and to Jim everyone at Team Wonky for making this happen and until next week stay cheaty Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.